And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, October 5th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, this USDA entomologist lets bugs do the dirty work of eliminating other bugs. Plus, the Librarian of Congress marks a cool seven years on the job. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, within the next year, continuous vetting will no longer apply only to federal employees in national security. More of you in certain positions involving public trust will also be subject to background checks, and you'll never know when. The goal is to enroll all feds in high and moderate risk positions into the government's continuous vetting program by the end of fiscal 2024. Here with more details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Let's begin, Drew, with continuous vetting. That's the government's word for they can look at any publicly available data that could indicate some change in your life that could make you at risk. Is that a good way to describe it? That is a good way to describe it, Tom. It subjects certain federal employees to background checks at any given time, so Rather than the alternative, which is commonly called reinvestigations, these occur every five years for many non-national security positions in government, the continuous vetting system, instead of having kind of these regular and more spread out background checks, the continuous vetting program will apply for employees who can be subject to them at any given time. During the process, agencies conduct record checks. These, this is an automated process. They look at things like, as you said, credit history, criminal records, other information like that. And then they flag any instances where an employee might have an issue that could put their employment at risk. So this can, for example, be an arrest. That's generally how the process works. Sure. And we should let people know they don't look into private records that are protected, but these are publicly available data sources. That is to say, if you're arrested on, say, a gun charge or a drug charge, that's a matter of public record. And so they scrape these databases that have all of this information. Also, you know, the transunions and experience, their data is publicly available. And if you have some severe financial hit and suddenly you're in debt, the government could discover that and that's considered a security risk. And we know it applies to people getting security clearance in the formal sense. Who else would this impact as it spreads? So this will generally start to impact a larger subset of the federal workforce, not just for national security positions, not just for those with security clearances, but it's applying now to or will be soon applying to uh, those who are in what are called non-sensitive public trust positions. Kind of a general term here, but what this means is these are employees who are in what is considered high or moderate risk levels in their positions. So things like policymaking roles, public safety and health roles law enforcement officers, those who have uh, certain fiduciary responsibilities, or what OPM says is other duties that demand a significant degree of public trust. So all all federal employees in those positions, the goal by the end of the, this fiscal year is to, to get them into this continuing vetting program. Now, will OPM have a specific list of jobs or functions, or do they leave that to the discretion of the agencies? Because Frankly, if you wait for OPM to come up with a list, it could be five years. So the ones that I just mentioned, these are the general categories that OPM considers to be in those uh, public trust roles. But of course, it will be up to the agency to kind of put together their list of who specifically is going to take on the continuous vetting program. Now, agencies must have to do something now. What is OPM telling them to get on the ball with? 
So this won't take effect immediately, but what uh, agencies have to start doing now, according to OPM, is start thinking about how they're going to put this continuous vetting process into place for these uh, new groups of employees. This means tracking who is going to be enrolled in the program, managing the requirements for how you get enrolled, managing alerts or letting employees know that, hey, you're going to start seeing this pretty soon. And that also includes in that communication, any communication that might have to be given to federal unions about about this as well. Wow. And they want to do this by the end of fiscal 2024. They are dreaming, folks, <laughs> if you ask me. That's just my personal opinion. And this is taking place primarily why? So this is part of what is called the Trusted Workforce 2.0 Initiative. This is something that began during the Trump administration and the Biden administration has continued for the last couple of years as well. The goal is to modernize and expand the vetting processes for federal employees. So taking things that exist, for example, national security positions and making that a little bit more broad to apply to other federal employees government-wide as well, not just national security agencies, but other agencies too. This new announcement from OPM and, and telling agencies to ramp up their preparations for launching this, this comes after a proposal earlier this year that OPM had where they were telling agencies to start planning on this as well. Well, this is something that's going to have to be diffuse throughout the agencies because you can't ask the secretary of VA to come up with a list of 360 66,000 employees, which ones of those are going to be subject to this? So it's going to have to get down, I would think, to the unit bureau office level of who people think should be under continuous vetting. And those people are going to need pretty clear guidance so that you have consistency across a big department. Right. There will likely be a good amount of lead time here. It could take at least a few months, if not longer, to figure out, you know, how is this process going to work for agencies? And I think that's why OPM is sharing this now. But Tom, also notably, this comes after a pilot that was launched earlier this year for a couple of different agencies where they were starting to enroll at least a few employees who are in these new types of positions into continuous vetting. The pilot is still ongoing, but they're generally going to try to take some lessons learned from there as well to apply more broadly. So that might be a source of help for agencies who who are going to be having to take this on. Now, will this all run through the NBIB, the National Background Investigation Bureau? Because that's really not quite fully baked itself yet. And the systems that they are trying to build to support continuous vetting for security clearance, it's really not there yet. And so will this load be put on that kind of still not quite stiffened set of foundational reads? It's hard to say at this point how that's all going to play out, but OPM is generally right now just directing agencies to start ramping up at least the preparation end or the first steps to make this happen by the end of the fiscal year. So we don't really know then yet whether any exactly. is involved, but some kind of a process is going to have to take place. And what about the costs? So OPM does say that this could eventually actually save money for employees depending on um, you know how much it costs to do these procedures versus the larger every five-year background checks that generally take place for these employees. That's something they laid out in their proposed regulations earlier this year, but they they do say that they think this can be a benefit to agencies who may face some burdens with the vetting process overall. All right. And so the end goal is to have this in place for some number of the two million-odd federal employees by the end of fiscal 2024. Correct. So that would be by September 30th, 2024, that uh, OPM is telling agencies to have this system in place. Also notably that employees who are in low risk category, it, it will eventually also apply to them. But OPM is still working through finalizing the regulations for that group of employees as well. Yes. But when you say people with 
public trust. I mean, that's procurement people, that's financial people in the accounting and finance function, that's grant-making people, as you mentioned, policy-making people. I'm trying to figure out who's not in a position of public trust when you're working for the federal government. No, that, that's a good point. This is covering a lot of people. It's uh, eventually the end goal is to look at all positions within the competitive service, the accepted service, the career senior executive service, and federal contractor employees. So there's a lot of groups that are involved in this process, and it will take some time to stand up. So we'll just kind of have to see how it plays out. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Librarian of Congress marks a cool seven years on the job. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Not too many people nominated during the Obama administration are still around, but my next guest is. She recently marked seven years in a crucial but largely hidden job, Librarian of Congress. For a retrospective, we welcome Carla Hayden to the show. Dr. Hayden, good to have you with us. Well, thank you, and thank you for marking the anniversary of the seventh year of my tenure term. I appreciate that. And you are only the 14th librarian of Congress in something that was established in 1802. So there's a good history of continuity in this job, isn't there? Very much so. And also, I'm the third person to be librarian of Congress that was actually a librarian. Uh, My two predecessors years ago were the heads of the Cleveland Public Library and the Boston Public Library. And I just recently was the head of the Enoch Pratt Free Library in Baltimore, that's also the State Library for Maryland, and we proudly would say the first uh, library system in the United States. Well, having been born in Cleveland and grew up around Boston, uh, so I know a lot of those places. I used to have lunch on the steps of the Boston Public Library. And let me ask you this, how do you approach or how have you been approaching this kind of dichotomy, if you will, in mission. There is a need for public access to the richness of the Library of Congress, and we won't spend too much time over how vast that is, people probably realize. But at the same time, it is also the Library of Congress, which has the ultimate rights to what's going on there. And how do you handle that sort of dual mission, if you will? The Library of Congress, of course, is the world's largest library. It has a collection of over 170 million items, It's the largest collection of human knowledge in the world. And it also is the nonpartisan research arm of Congress. That's how it started. It started with 600 law books that when you think about 1800, the first librarian came in 1802. It was a new nation. These were reference books to serve them. But now it is really the research arm for Congress and the people Congress serves. And so there's still a dedicated staff, the Congressional Research Service, and many people know about the reports that they make publicly available out of the research they do for Congress. And that's hundreds of specialists in every field, plus one of my favorite things, embedded librarians (laughs) and information specialists that work with PhDs and energy and just every topic. And then... The three physical buildings that are open to the general public, 
adjacent to the Capitol. And before the pandemic, two million people visited those buildings because there's a direct tunnel, a link from the Capitol Visitor Center. And so people from all over the world are able to look at the exhibits that are being able to now go through our digital front door. We've digitized 61 million items. And so that being able to still serve Congress and be that for them, but also the people Congress serves has been an exciting part of what we're doing and letting people know about all of the things they can access. And a side question on that idea of digitizing so many of the resources. I think one of the great innovations in that process was the use of citizen translators, citizen readers, people that could volunteer and take a document and read something that was faded ink on parchment or ink on paper or something and create the digital version. Is there still opportunity for that? Oh, there's quite a bit of opportunity. And the pandemic really allowed us to accelerate that effort. We started it uh, several years ago by the people. And there are so many documents that need to be transcribed so they're more accessible. You can imagine cursive writing. And we even had intergenerational projects, too, because you might have younger people who were very good with the computers but couldn't read cursive writing. And so we even had uh, that where we invited people to help us. And the first group of documents were letters to Abraham Lincoln that hadn't really been read in decades. And so now we're putting more things up and anyone can get online and, and start helping us transcribe all types, the diaries of Clara Barton, all of these types of things that are in sometimes a a format that makes it hard for people now to read are available. So please, if you'd like to do it, we would appreciate it. It's kind of fun too. And the language that's used in the older times is kind of interesting too. It would be nice to maybe get some of these texters and Instagram and TikTok generation people to maybe digitize those documents and think of the English and the the uh, classical ability of self-expression that they might learn in so doing. It might be very helpful. And the interesting part was the lack of an ability to read cursive writing. It's like a foreign language to a younger generation. Crazy. We're speaking with Dr. Carla Hayden. She is the 14th Librarian of Congress. And speaking of COVID and the pandemic, how did that affect the library? And are you back to where it was prior? We are almost entirely back to the number of people who were able to just physically come in to the facilities, Jefferson Building, the Adams Building, and the Madison Building right there. And what we were able to do because we had spent before the pandemic several years strengthening our information technology infrastructure. It was in a challenged space and there was a, even a GAO report about it that was made public that we needed to work on that. But all of that work paid off because when the pandemic hit and we had to switch to teleworking virtual programming, for instance, the National Book Festival was all virtual with 120 authors 
who were able to Zoom in. We were able to have authors that might not have been able to make it for that one day at the Washington Convention Center that we've been having it. So we had a actually a richer variety of programming. And so we've continued that aspect. So this year, the National Book Festival was back at the Washington Convention Center. However, we had the virtual component. So we had people from all 50 states that were able to tune in and listen to and even interact with an author that's in Washington. So we learned a lot of lessons. We were already going down a digital path and as happened with many institutions and individuals, the pandemic pushed us down there a little more rapidly (laughs) and we saw it could work. Uh, Zoom became a verb and it's really though has helped us do something that we said we wanted to do in our strategic planning, connect to everyone. And so this really has opened it up for us. And I want to ask you a philosophic question maybe about the role of libraries. And this is in the context of what has happened in the country over the past several years, the latest example of which I heard just the other day on the radio, which is that certain stained glass windows in the National Cathedral have been replaced because the old ones showed Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee. And, you know, maybe now we don't want to have statues to those people, but neither do we want to pretend they never existed. Do you think that, in fact, it would be harmful to our national memory and understanding of events if we erased that memory? So it seems like libraries are in a unique position to strike the balance between you can't change the past. In fact, the better we preserve it, the more we understand ourselves. And maybe the libraries are the best place for this kind of adjustment to occur. Libraries and museums have such an important role in providing context. And my colleague, Dr. Lonnie Bunch at the Smithsonian, talks about this quite a bit. And he's been on the show, too, an impressive man. Very impressive, because when you erase one part of history, you are also opening the door to erasing other parts and giving people a sense of how things came to be and giving that context can help with that understanding of where we are now and where we could go in the future. And libraries and museums are places that people look to for trusted information. I know we have in the library world, one of the greatest stereotypes that we're not in it for anything. Uh, we're, we're trusted. Um, and that's something that people can count on. In, in this time that there's quite a bit of, I think it's been termed misinformation or that libraries and museums can be that place that you know that people are vetting the information and trying to give you a sense of what you can count on. We continue now with our interview with Dr. Carla Hayden, the 14th Librarian of Congress. And I wanted to ask you, getting back to your term, you have three years left and you've made a lot of changes. Maybe summarize how you think the library has come in these seven years and what your plan is for the next three that you have, at least that we know of in your term, because it is subject to reappointment, but that's nothing we can really speculate on at this point. Well, I mentioned the uh, multi-year effort to strengthen the library's IT infrastructure and to be able to offer more 
collections and also programming and direct interactions with the general public and with Congress as we serve them. And so that will be expanding even more and strengthening the on-site experiences that people have in the three buildings, especially the Thomas Jefferson, really our front door. And so we'll have for the first time an orientation center for the general public to help them understand what the Library of Congress is, what it can do for them, like our veterans history, oral history project that they can participate in, a learning lab. This is close to my heart for the young and the young at heart, where we'll have interactive experiences in programming. And we hope to inspire a new generation of researchers and filmmakers. Ken Burns uses our collections extensively. So there's an opportunity for more people to become creators and even historians. And then our exhibit spaces will be expanded. For the first time, we'll have in the Jefferson Building a treasures gallery. And we'll be able to rotate some of the many things that we have, like the contents of Abraham Lincoln's pockets the night he was assassinated. Been seen at the Ford Theater on loan there, but we'll be able to put things on display and just expand the awareness of what the Library of Congress is. With respect to those treasures, they're still coming in too, aren't they? Oh, yes. We just received the collection of the playwright Neil Simon. So the cultural arts are very extensive at the library, as well as the historic papers that are coming in, Secretary Madeleine Albright's papers. Here we have the papers, and we've been able to work with the Supreme Court on the papers of 38 Supreme Court justices, including Sandra Day O'Connor and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And those two Women were very involved in setting up the terms, so we work closely with the Supreme Court on what can be made available to the public, as well as the papers of 23 presidents. And that's where our relationship with NARA is very strong and has been even strengthened. I think your listeners will be pleased to know that there was a, and it's even been put up as a tweet, uh, from the new archivist of the United States, Dr. Colleen Shogan, hosted me as the librarian and also Dr. Lonnie Bunch from the Smithsonian to continue the partnership that we had with her predecessor, David Ferriol. We call ourselves the Gang of Three. Sure. <laughs> well, I can tell you that uh, Ms. Shogan is going to be on the show shortly, too. We've got oh, that interview great. lined up. because we And she's wonderful. And so just making sure that those three institutions, for instance, uh, the Library of Congress had the founding documents until the 1950s. And then when NARA was established, they turned them over. And there's a very dramatic photograph. And it was, we found out later through correspondence that it was staged with the Library of Congress and the archivists at the time to have tankers come up to the steps of the Library of Congress to take the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, all those things that have been there. But when people sometimes get a little confused about what the difference is, the, of course, NARA is the official place for government documents and correspondence. 
and the Library of Congress might have the diaries of Teddy Roosevelt. So when you think about it now, that's the division. And so it makes it a, when we work on, and that's one of the things that we talked about last week, just in fact, the relationship with those three institutions can give a richer, let's say, exhibit experience. Sure. Smithsonian has the actual clothes that Benjamin Franklin wore. NARA has documents from his patents, all kinds of things. And then the Library of Congress might have his correspondence. And so we, we're we going to be working on how can we, one of my favorites uh, was the um, Orville and Wilbur Wright archives at the Library of Congress. So we have that. NARA has all of their official documentation for their flight. And as Dr. Bunch reminded us, they have the plane. <laughs> yes, indeed, they sure <laughs> okay. do. So there's more we can do to just uh, make sure that our collections connect. But that's the dividing line there with NARA. We are speaking with Dr. Carla Hayden, the 14th Librarian of Congress, as she celebrates seven years of a 10-year term in office. And as someone who used to use card catalogs and had a rudimentary understanding of the Dewey Decimal System, gosh, librarian science has changed so vastly as to be almost unrecognizable from when I was growing up, anyhow. What are the human capital needs of something like the Library of Congress? And what does it take to be a librarian? What does that word really mean nowadays? Nowadays, the word librarian has expanded to be an information specialist. When that's what librarians always were. And we even have T-shirts and mugs that say librarian, the original search engines. We would help you. And once technology gave us even more ability. So those card catalogs were now the online catalogs. So we have, instead of graduate library schools where you get a master's degree in library science, it's now a master's degree in information science. And we're actually having some competition for our graduates with big tech firms. Because one of the things that you learn is search techniques and what and reference and answering the question and that. So you, you really have, and we're attracting a lot of younger people into the profession because that is a service that libraries give and it's not commercial. And so they're able to give information access and help people find the information they need. Health information is the number one aspect of what libraries people go to libraries for still and do you think that librarians also need to have let's say a digital side and what i'll call for lack of a better word a sensual side by that i mean the love and appreciation of paper books and typography of the parchment documents that you mentioned and of i mean i remember how libraries used to smell i mean book glue that was the glue yeah right (laughs) that was the glue And what has happened is that there is now more of a specialty with people who are involved with the book arts, the book as artifact, the the documents as physical items. And so the digitizing of letters, for instance, but also the preservation of the physical. And so you now have preservationists and people who and younger people who were interested in chemistry and art and all of that that are working with the original items 
And that's a specialty there and people who care for rare books. And then you have the digital side that are just straight up. Here's what's being born digital, as they call it. So when information is coming in, it never touches anything physical. Sure, It's straight into the digital. So there are so many opportunities now. In the museum world, it's the same thing. You, you have this variety of ways to touch information or items. And two final quick questions. What's your favorite type of butterscotch? Anything that has a connection to chocolate. <laughs> All right. And I guess I, I missed that mark one a little bit. And last question, what was in Lincoln's Pockets? Oh, it's such an experience to see the two. He had two glasses. He had two pairs of glasses, spectacles, as it was called. He had a handkerchief that had his initials on it, and it was used. He also had a wallet with Confederate bill. He had just been down to visit the South and had that. He had about six newspaper articles that were well-read and about the war and that were basically critical of his efforts. And then the part that really got me something like, it's almost a, a button. And when you think about a button coming off of your jacket and you would just put it in your pocket and that that might've been more immediate, that might've happened earlier that day. So it really brings him to life in a, in a poignant way. I guess that's what libraries do is bring life to us in a poignant way. Dr. Carla Hayden is the 14th Librarian of Congress. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Check out the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, this USDA entomologist lets bugs do the dirty work of eliminating other bugs. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Apple and pear growers in Washington state are using insects instead of chemical pesticides to control other bugs that can ruin crops. It's an old idea, but not always a practical one until now. Credit goes to an entomologist at the Agricultural Research Service, who is also a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Rebecca Schmidt-Jeffress joins me now. Dr. Schmidt-Jeffress, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. Great to be here. And the idea is that if you can introduce an insect population that preys on the harmful ones, then that can help mitigate the need for pesticides and so forth. But as I understand it, the difficulty is getting those bugs to come on over and move in and start eating what you want them to eat. Absolutely. So there are a lot of challenges, including getting the ones that are already present, because the nice thing about orchards is they're open to the environment and a nice stable ecosystem. So you also want the uh, nice native predators to stay put and live happily in that system, which doesn't always work with certain pesticides. Right. And so then how were you able to get this to happen? Tell us what your experiments and what is it about the insects that you needed to discover so that they could be good, you know, move in and say, eat those guys. So one of the really great things about the Washington tree fruit industry in particular is it has this long history of being pretty aware of how certain pesticides can impact natural enemies. So their questions are kind of a fundamental 
as we have these new pesticides that we're using, some of them tend to be softer, less harmful to humans in the environment, which ones are the better choices for our particular group of natural enemies of these pests that exist? So we spend a lot of time in my research program figuring out those questions for the predators that are important in that particular system uh, that is unique to us. And then kind of the new component that we've been working on on top of that is, you know, there are cases where someone has transitioned to organic, maybe they don't have as many natural enemies, maybe they're having a bad year and they need something just to add on top of what they've already got going on. So there are, and this is going to surprise a lot of people, beneficial insects that you can purchase online from various companies that raise them. That's their job is to raise these beneficial insects. So what our growers wanted was, okay, if I go and buy them, which are the best choices for the pests that we have in tree fruit? How many do I put on? It's got to be economical, so I don't want to overdo it. When do I put them on and which pests are they the best to control? And so we are working on answering all of those questions with a series of experiments going on in, in our growers' orchards, just trying to get them that information. And what are the chief pests that harm apple crops and pear crops? So the big number one that folks will probably be familiar with colloquially is we oh, we hear about worms and apples. So that is a caterpillar. And that's the caterpillar of the codling moth. So they're primarily managing that pest with other means, either using a very selective chemical program and then also doing a very cool thing called mating disruption, where they basically swarm the orchard with the female pheromone of the codling moth. And it means the male can't find the female, so she doesn't have fertilized eggs and there are hence no caterpillars to get into the fruit. It's kind of all the other pests that come past codling moth in terms of significance that can be really impacted by biocontrol. So in apples, the big one is a various species of aphids. They're really problematic because they feed on tree sap. Tree sap has a lot of sugar in it. When they, for lack of a better word, poop, they poop directly onto the fruit. You get this nasty streaking because mold will form because it's eating that sugar. Uh, so you get a really unattractive, sometimes partially rotten apple. And then in pears, they've got a pest called Pearsilla that essentially does the same thing. It feeds on the tree sap and causes really nasty streaking on the fruit. And it's also not good for the health of the tree. And that could make for a really bad Thanksgiving set of pies. And is one of the other advantages of using, as you call it, natural or biologic pest control is that often, even when you use gentle pesticides, the bugs adapt and they get immune to it pretty quickly whereas they never evolve fast enough to not get eaten by the thing that is sent to attack them. Yeah, and well, and the nice thing about the thing that's trying to attack them is it also is evolving. We can't make pesticides naturally change what they are in the field, but predators sure can also evolve and continue to evolve to basically be able to stay alive and eat those pests. So yeah, this is really just a finding more effective tools that are not chemically based so the grower can rely more on those as opposed to tools that they're constantly having to cycle out due to lack of efficacy over time. We're speaking with Dr. Rebecca Schmidt-Jeffress. She's a research entomologist at the Agricultural Research Service and a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And how do you measure the effectiveness of this type of work? For example, if you completely spray a place from an airplane, pretty much you'll get all the aphids and you'll get all of the bad bugs that you don't want. But then you've got this big spray and big poison cloud you have to drop. On the other hand, if you release bugs, you can't be sure they'll get them all and you'll have a certain crop loss. So are there metrics to, to understand what's going on? That's a really great question, Tom. So there are kind of two parts, um, one of which my lab has kind of figured out over time, which is a lot of our growers to figure out whether or not 
it was working, we're going back and looking for the thing they had released. Totally makes sense. Uh, if I release a lacewing, I want to be able to go find them again. Well, it turns out looking for a little tiny predator in a big tree is pretty hard. So, you know, they'd find a few and go, I don't know that this worked. So really for us, it's about measuring the levels of the pest and the area that we release these predators and comparing it to an area where we didn't and seeing what that changes and whether it's substantial enough that a grower would go, oh yeah, that's that's something that I would be interested in doing. On a bigger scale, growers consider certain levels of damage to be acceptable because you're even with a pesticide, you're not going to get 100% perfect control. So it's all about what's the cost of the control mechanism and what's the point where I'm going to have a yield loss and does that balance to equal profit. So there's a lot of great work out there to look at this for various pests. And then of course, they've got to also do squishy math, which is basically, okay, maybe this isn't as effective as a kill-all pesticide in the very short term, but what's the long-term cost of repeatedly using that pesticide? And is this going to be net beneficial in the end? Sure. Is there any economic value whatsoever for apples that might be wrecked for human consumption, but can you feed them to hogs or something? Or squeeze them uh, for cider. A lot of a lot of uh, apples that get really wrecked for human consumption will go into processing. So they'll you know you can juice them and things like that. But really, it becomes difficult if you've got an apple that was intended for the fresh market where the value is higher to still have that hand labor go in and pick it and then have it then go into a really low value commodity. So sometimes you end up just not having an orchard that's really been hit hard, like a frost damage incident where there's only some fruit left. They just won't have them pick it. And unfortunately, it goes to waste. The labor's not worth it. Yeah. Well, as an apple devotee, I hate to see any apple not land right in the right place that it should. And let me ask you this. How did you come to this work? Tell us about your background. And it seems like a fairly important passion in your life. Yeah, so I never expected that I would get into agriculture. I always expected I would get into something pretty nerdy. Uh, I like science. I love always love bugs and other things that people maybe don't enjoy as much, like snakes and lizards. Uh, so I wanted to be, you know, a natural historian, look at animal behavior. And one of my research advisors as an undergrad said, you know, if you really want to get into the nitty gritty and observe things up close and do manipulations, insects are where it's at because they're small uh, and people kind of really have a care about them. And there are a lot of programs that look at studying insects. And I just kind of stumbled my way into working in agriculture because of how many people that work in entomology end up finding themselves there. And I ended up really fortunate in that I thought I wanted to study big, charismatic predators like cougars and wolves. And I think I study pretty charismatic, but very, very small predators now. So I got what I wanted, but I'm also doing something that really benefits the American public, which really makes me happy kind of in both directions. And by the way, spiders, is that part of your purview? We do. We do do some spider research. It turns out we're finding out they're quite beneficial in orchard systems. They do a good job of kind of taking care of a lot of the small, squishy insects that growers do not want in their trees. All right, because I'm a fan of spiders. I don't step on a spider. I don't step on insects. I try not to. I've got just a few exceptions of things that are, are probably not going to get gently escorted outside. But for the most part, all spiders that I find indoors get gently escorted outside. You know, those in the big jumping grasshoppers that come in in the fall, you know, they have striped legs. I throw them out. I don't know that, whether they survive outside, but I'm not going to crush one. I just can't do it. Well, I'm glad we have you on the job. Dr. Rebecca Schmidt-Jeffress is research entomologist at the Agricultural Research Service, working out of Washington State, and she's a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. Thanks so much for joining me. 
Thank you so much. Great to be here. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Federal human resources employees now have a standard set of data and business elements and performance measures to lean on as they modernize their hiring and other things they do. The HR line of Business and Quality Service Management Office, the HR Quizmo, completed the effort earlier this year. Jeff Pollack is the Human Resources Line of Business Program Manager at the Office of Personnel Management. Steve Krauss is Senior Advisor for the HR Quizmo. They tell Federal News Network's Jason Miller and Drew Friedman about how these standards will bring more efficiency and better results to HR functions. First, you hear from Jeff Pollack. It includes the portion of the human capital business reference model, which is kind of our guiding principle for human capital management. That includes the employee life cycle. So what's posted on GSA's USSM website are the five functional areas that encompass the employee life cycle, talent acquisition, talent development, employee performance management, compensation management, then separation and retirement. And then to complete the human capital business reference model, we've posted the rest of the functional areas, which include enabling and supporting areas on regulations.gov for comment. Those will make it to USSM's website in the upcoming months. Let me kind of back us up a little bit. Back in January when we talked, the HR standards, as Steve said, this was kind of a a lot of work that went into this to understand, okay, what what goes into this? And now these are, when we talk about standards, these are data standards, these are taxonomies. Walk us through a little bit what this is, because folks hear standards and they can go in all different directions. Those are kind of everything that you just mentioned in terms of the standards. They include the data standards. When GSA created the format for the Federal Integrated Business Framework, the FIBF, those are the service profiles for how mission support delivers on their functional work. So there is an FIBF standard for financial management. There's an FIBF standard for cybersecurity, et cetera. What we are, what OPM owns is the FIBF for human capital management. So what, what does the F, what is the FIBF made up of? It's made up of service activities. So it breaks down each portion of the human capital business reference model into different activities that need to be completed to be considered to deliver on that functional area, as well as capabilities or what I call requirements for actually down to the regulation law policy level of what you need to deliver data standards. So what data elements do you need in order to deliver on these standards, as well as performance metrics to determine how well you're doing on delivering on these capabilities and on these data elements. I do want to just mention that these are not system requirements. These are not IT requirements. These are requirements to deliver human capital management in the federal agencies. What is your vision for how agencies will actually use these standards then? And what is your role in helping them kind of adhere or adopt the standards? We are seeing agencies 
apply these standards in a variety of ways. Some of these are kind of mature examples that we can point to, and others are sort of developing and evolving as we speak. So in, in speaking with agencies, we've already seen examples where agencies have used the human capital business reference model to check their own human capital organization, to check their HR functions, how they have them organized, almost using them as a checklist to make sure that they are covering all the things that they need to be covering. In the area of data standards, we're seeing um, agencies and OPM really start to use the data standard as sort of a translator to be able to take the data from agency systems and compare that. And as OPM is building dashboards and analytic tools for government-wide use, these standards are, are becoming uh, very influential in, in terms of enabling the data to be interoperable and to build government-wide pictures of important topics like attrition and time to hire and DEIA and things of that nature. And then what we're also seeing is, you know, while, while Jeff mentioned that the standards themselves are not IT requirements, there are several efforts underway across a, a number of different agencies who are engaged in HR IT modernization efforts, and they are actually starting to build IT requirements, and they're using the standards as a foundation and a baseline to start from. And, and that is really important. That really is consistent with what we've envisioned all along, is that agencies can, can use those standards to kind of ground the, the common framework that they start with, and then they, then they can ask from there, what in addition to those standards might we need? And that's where we see these standards and the, and the um, evolving requirements that come from them being a really good way of laying the groundwork and communicating between government and our industry partners, because then companies in the market can use these standards and these requirements to understand what their products need to be able to do in order to truly serve the, uh, the needs of federal agencies. Steve, you bring up an interesting point about the, the technology side, because one one thing that's always been challenging is, has there been a set of, okay, where do we all start from? A floor, if you will, on HR standards. And I know over the years, this effort, HRLOB, the line of business has tried to do that. Do you feel like you've gotten to, that's where you're at today? Like you've got the initial floor laid, the foundation. I know it's a commonly used word, one we used previously. Uh, Jeff or Steve, I'll throw it to either of you, but but this is this now, every agency now has a starting point, and that, and that feels probably really good. So this is Jeff. So yeah, Jason, I think that what we have built and what we, what we can promote is the first version of the employee life cycle of those standards. The rest of the picture is in the regulations.gov posting waiting for more, more public review. But what we have established is that first version. And what we've spent many, many years doing in building these standards is the culmination of all that work and the ability to put them out in a post in a, in a public forum for agencies to address and to use. Uh, I did want to kind of circle back to one thing that I want I meant to mention that Drew had asked, and that's kind of like what are the next steps or or where does the HRLOB go with this? So over the course of these years and building the standards, that's where our momentum has been. It's been on, on creating version one of the standards. 
where we want to go now and where we're starting to work with agencies are the adoption of the standards, how they can use them, where they can do uh, better work with them and be more efficient. They, the agencies, have contributed their time and money in certain circumstances to build these for the purpose of the idea that each individual agency wouldn't have to do it on their own, that the sum was greater than their parts. So what we're doing now is turning around and pivoting in a software development type way from the development stage into the implementation stage and working with the agencies who might want to put out a new contract to do and deliver on, let's say, workforce and performance analytics and have a baseline requirements of what that means in the federal government. So it's exciting. We're setting up one-on-one meetings with the agencies who might be uh, interested in, in following that evolution. Jeff Pollack is the Human Resources Line of Business Program Manager at the Office of Personnel Management. Steve Krauss is the Senior Advisor for the HR Quizmo Quality Service Management Office there. Speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller and Drew Friedman. Check out their story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.